Well, we're going to continue our uh, study through the Gospel of John this morning, and uh, last week we uh, began looking at the famous conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, and we're going to look at a portion of the conversation that Jesus had with this woman today, and uh, there's also a paragraph in the end of chapter 3, right before the passage of the woman at the well, that I thought kind of tied in with what we were talking about today, so I kind of left that to, to look at today. So we're going to kind of uh, uh, have two chunks, of, three chunks of passages from John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 that we're going to look at together. So uh, if you have uh, a Bible, you can follow along there or you can follow along in the bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives this testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And we're going to skip down to chapter 4, verse 5. So Jesus came to a, a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Then skipping down to verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, this passage tells us that you are seeking true worshipers. We long to be those true worshipers. Seek us out now through your word. Be our teacher and send us your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning we are talking about the topic of worship. And 
you may have picked up, I think, ten times the, the Greek word for worship shows up in this uh, passage. And in verse 23, as I just prayed, Jesus says that God the Father is seeking true worshipers. So our question this morning is, what is true worship? Um, and, well, as Christians, you know, when we talk about worship, there are a couple things we could mean by that. On the one hand... Worship for a Christian is all of life. All of life is worship. We're supposed to live all of our life to God's glory. We're supposed to honor him in everything we do and to obey him and love him. So there's no part of our life that in some ways is not worship. But on the other hand, we also have worship on the Lord's Day. What we're doing right now is the formal corporate gathering of God's people where we give ourselves to the means of grace, to God's word, to the sacraments, to song, to confession, to prayer. And uh, that's the kind of worship that Jesus and this woman were talking about. Because she asked, well, where's the right place that you're supposed to do worship? Which means where are God's people supposed to gather to worship? And the relationship between these two kinds of worship, the worship on Sunday and the worship every day, um, are, is important. Because what happens on Sunday is the engine that motivates worship in all of life. God uses this time of worship to give us hearts that want to glorify him in everything we do. So what are the qualities that Jesus calls true worship? How does God intend for us to worship him? Well, I'd like this morning to talk about five qualities of true worship that we see in this passage. And I know that five is more than my usual three uh, points. But this sermon is going to be a little more of a teaching sermon than a preaching sermon. So, you know, uh, we're going to learn some theology. We're going to learn about our worship service. And there's quite a lot in this passage. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right into it. So what are the marks of true worship? And five things we see in this passage is that true worship is Trinitarian, covenantal, communal, intellectual, and Christ-centered. Five things. Trinitarian, covenantal, communal, intellectual, and Christ-centered. And you might say, well, I'm not sure what some of those words mean. That's okay. If you don't know those words, we're going to explain them as we go along. So marks of true worship. What is supposed to be happening here on Sunday mornings? We gather. This is a big part of the routine of all of our lives. What's God intending to happen? Five things. First, true worship is Trinitarian. And by Trinitarian, what I mean is that the most fundamental reality of the God of the Bible is that the God of the Bible exists in a trinity. That means he is one God who exists in three distinct persons. So you have the Father, who is that one God. He is fully that one God. And the Son, who is fully that one God. And the Holy Spirit, who is fully that one God. Except the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So you have one God, and you have three distinct persons. And you might say, maybe you ask, like, well, how does that work? I don't, my brain doesn't understand that. Of course your brain doesn't understand it. Would our brains understand the God who made this universe? No, we would not understand him. He's, but one thing uh, about the doctrine of the Trinity, one of the things it does is it places love as the deepest reality of existence. Before there was a universe, there was a father and a son who loved each other in the spirit. That, that's the deep reality of the universe, is love. And worship, then, is our entrance into the Trinity, Trinity, the life of the Trinity, the life and love of the Trinity. When we come into worship, it's the Father and the Son love each other in the Spirit, and we come into that love through worship. That's what we're supposed to be doing. 
Now, throughout the New Testament, you find these uh, Trinitarian formulas that tie together the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And there's a couple in this passage. Maybe you saw a couple of those passages. In chapter 3, verse 34, look at what it says. For he whom the Father has sent, who's that? That's the Son. Utters the words of God, that's the Father. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all right there. Or if you skip down to chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the Spirit there, that's of course in the Holy Spirit. And so the, the Father and Spirit are present there. But who is the truth? If you look later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says this about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so true worship is worshiping the Father in the Spirit and in the Son. It's a Trinitarian activity. It's Trinitarian worship. C.S. Lewis probably describes it better than I can. He, uh, in his chapter in Mere Christianity on the Trinity, this is, this is how Lewis describes it. He says, the thing that matters is being actually drawn into that three-personal life. And that may begin any time tonight, if you like. What I mean is this. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But he, if he's a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside of him. So that's the Spirit. So he's praying to God, and then he has the Spirit that's prompting him, God inside of him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God. That Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. So that's the Son. And so you see what's happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he's trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. And then listen to this sentence. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that little ordinary, uh, in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. So Lewis is talking about the, tr the Trinity is present when a man is saying his prayers by himself. How much more when God's people gather together, we worship the Father in the Son and in the Spirit. That's what we are doing on Sundays. So that's what we mean by first, the distinctive part of Christian worship is that it's Trinitarian. It's the distinctive mark of who our God is. Now, if worship, though, is about us being brought into this relationship, the Father and the Son, who love each other in the Spirit, and we're being brought into that, um, then we need to understand how the Bible speaks about our relationship to God. And actually, you know, as far as I know, I don't think the Bible uses the word relationship, having a relationship with God. The way that the Bible talks is it says when someone comes to know God, they enter into covenant with God. And that's the second quality about biblical worship is not only this Trinitarian, it's a worship of the three personal God, but true worship is covenantal. And if you don't know what a covenant is, um, probably the most familiar example of a covenant in our days is a marriage. Marriage is a relationship that's bound together by promises. So, you know, one of the things that marks a marriage is that a marriage is not simply about feelings of affection. We know that feelings of affection will come and go. We give a stability and a permanence 
to the relationship by making vows to one another in marriage that, that makes, uh, the, uh, makes the, there's a certain kind of formality that gives a stability to the relationship when it has all its ups and downs. And the Bible says that our relationship with God is similar. You know, all of us, you know, many people think of our spiritual lives primarily in terms of the kind of mystical encounter we have with, you know, the great spirit or God or, who, you know, whatever is the spiritual energies that are present in the creation. And you'll find that those experiences will kind of come and go. You'll feel them, and sometimes they feel close, sometimes they feel far away. But God gives the stability to us because he binds himself to us with promises. And we respond to those promises with love. And so you could say, well, how do you enter into a covenant with God? How do you be married to God? Well, the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Confession is our church's doctrinal standard. It's a brilliant statement of Christian orthodoxy. It was written in the 1640s. And uh, it's not that long. If you want to read it, it's, it, it's, it's really helpful. And there is a chapter on covenants in the Westminster Confession. And the opening paragraph says this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. So what this is saying is we're so far from God that we could never on our own effort just have a relationship with God. But it says, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. What Westminster says, the only way we could have a relationship with God is if God condescends to us. If God voluntarily comes down and says, I want to know you, and I want you to know me. And, you know, I think a condescension, we kind of think of that as a bad word. You know, we say someone's condescending, they, like, look down on other people. But, you know, I think a condescension is when an adult is talking with a little two-year-old, and they get down on one knee so that they're at their level. They made themselves low so they can connect with the child. That's what God does for us is he makes himself low in order to connect with us and have a relationship with us. That's exactly what this passage says. You see the opening verse there, verse 31 in chapter 3. He who comes from above is above all. That's Jesus. He is the king, a ruler of all things, the creator of all things. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's us. You know, we have these finite minds and we don't understand why we even exist and who God is. He who comes from above is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. That God is true. What this whole passage is describing is condescension. God coming down to us. And, you know, I'll tell you, that was my, my prayer this morning. Like, you know, get ready. I want God's people to experience his presence. What's the only way we're going to experience his presence? If he voluntarily comes to give himself to us and lives among us and speaks to us. And you'll notice that that passage had also the language of a seal. Right? It says his testimony sets his seal to this. What is a seal? A seal is something that you put on an official document verifying the authority of the one who gives it. And so covenants are relationships that are ratified, marked by a seal, right? So when you get married and you give these vows to one another, what do you do? You give this sign and a seal of a ring. It says, this is a sign of my pledge to you. This is a seal of my pledge to you. And then in a marriage, you know, on the wedding day you give the ring. 
And then the covenant relationship begins. And then you renew the covenant. When a married couple make love to one another, what they're doing is they're saying again, you know those promises I made in our wedding that I will never leave you, that we are one, my whole life is yours, I share with you everything that's mine, when they make love to one another. That's what they're saying to one another again. They're renewing their covenant vows. In the church, it's very similar. If that's okay, if that's not too graphic. But in the church, it's very similar. We have a wedding day at our baptism where we receive a seal. It's like a wedding ring from God. And every Sunday, we come here to renew the covenant of our baptism. And we hear from God again that he says to us, I will never leave you. These are my promises. And at the Lord's Supper, what do we say at the Lord's Supper when we take the bread and the wine? Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This meal is a renewal of our baptism. It's the covenant meal. And so true worship is a covenant renewal service where God says to us, I will never leave you. And we say to God, we are yours and all we have belongs to you. By the way, it's not an accident that our culture has lost a covenantal understanding of sex. Sex always mirrors our worship. And in our culture, worship and spirituality are only about having an experience that feels pleasurable and fulfilling. And it's not about entering into covenant with God. It's not about obligations to God. It's not about God's promises to us and our promises to him. It's not about that. It's about, now, I'm not saying feelings aren't important. We're going to come back to that. But our sex also is only about having an experience that feels pleasurable and fulfilling. And so we don't understand that sex is about a man and a woman who've taken vows to each other, renewing those vows in passion and love and saying, I will never leave you again. So true worship is Trinitarian, the triune, three-personal God. And we come into the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit through a covenant which God marries himself to us. That's why the church is called the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We're married to Christ, okay? Now, when we all as individuals come into relationship with God through covenant, it not only binds us to God, but it has another maybe side effect you could call it, is it binds us to one another. And that's the third thing we learn in this passage, is that true worship is also communal. It's Trinitarian, covenantal, and communal. That is, we become a community and a body through the act of worship. This coming together every Sunday is so important for us to become a family, for us to become a body, to be, for us to become unified. And, you know, Jesus in this conversation with this woman is uh, talking about the place or the location of worship. And you saw that there in verse 19, chapter 4, verse 19, where it says, The woman said to him, Sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now what this woman is describing is there's a massive cultural division between the Jews and the Samaritans. And very close to the heart of this cultural division is a dispute about worship. Now in our day, you know, we tend to think squabbles like these are pretty archaic. You know, these ancient people, some people thought this place was holy, and some people think that place is holy, and we're more enlightened now. We know that not one place is more holy than another, and, you know, all these fights about this is the holy land, and this is the important temple, or that's the important shrine, all that does is cause wars and divides humanity. And so, what do we do in Bellingham for worship instead of holy temples, 
shrines, or altars. Where do we go to worship? We go up in the mountains. We go to nature. We say things like, this is my church up here. You know, I'm up on Yellow Aster Butte. That's my church. It's quiet. It's beautiful. I experience God. By the way, I love hiking. I love backpacking. I love nature. I do. And up in the mountains, I don't have a, a judgment of other people's beliefs. I don't start wars up in the mountains. I just feel inner peace in the mountains. Do you know why you have no judgment of other people's religious beliefs up in the mountain? Because there aren't any people up in the mountain. You went there to get away from the people. That's why we, went, that's why we feel peace is because there's no one I have to deal with up there. And if you think the religions of the world separate human communities, then there has been no more divisive religion than the nature worship of Bellingham, Washington. Nothing divides people more than going by yourself up in the mountains. And it sounds so harmless to say that the mountains are my church until you realize that the word church means gathering or assembly. <laughs> it means people coming together. And it's a hard thing to deal with people. It's a hard thing to be a part of a community and to be a, a body. But the triune God of love is bringing people together into a family. Worship on the mountain is running away from community. And true worship should break down divisions and bring people together. And that's what the worship of Jesus is doing in every nation around the globe on this Sunday morning, everywhere, is bringing people who would never have been friends together, together in one room saying, we love our God. Now you might hear that and you say, you know, we can't be overly dogmatic that there is one... One way is the right way to worship. Everyone has their own way of approaching God, and judging others will just cause divisions. But Jesus clearly does think there are some ways to worship that are right and some ways that are wrong. You see what he says in verse 21, where Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, this is an interesting change that Jesus makes. He says, listen, there are no longer any special places to worship. I'm going to have special places to worship all over the globe. But I am telling you the way of salvation, the way to know God is through the Jews, through this people, through the truth that they have. The Jews have this truth and you don't. Which means that somehow worship has to unify people has to bring people together while also being done properly the way that Jesus says that God wants it. This is his worship. How does God want worship to be done? And so how do you do that? I think that that leads to a fourth truth about true worship. So it's, it's Trinitarian, it's covenantal, it's communal, it brings people together. Fourth, true worship is intellectual was the word I picked. I don't know if that's the right word. But verse in chapter 3, verse 34, you see it says... For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Central to God's worship throughout the Bible is the word of God, the proclamation of the word of God. God speaks. God wants us to think in worship. God wants us to understand in worship. You know, some of you might say, wow, this is a lot of new words for me in this sermon right now. This is a good example of it. Require, it's demanding of our intellect that worship should be that way. And that's why our worship, we always have a half hour, you know, sermon where we talk about 
theology and we talk about philosophy and we talk about therapy. We talk about life application. We talk about history. We talk about literature. It's an intellectual and you might even say cerebral experience. God expects us to come prepared to intellectually engage him. Why is that? Look at, this is verse 23, chapter 4, verse 23. This is what God wants. But the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You know, we have a culture that's happy to talk about spirituality. Everyone should have this. Spirituality is one of the healthy things. You don't have a healthy body, have a, you know, healthy routine to your life and have a healthy spirituality. We're happy about spirituality. But when we talk about truth, you know, uh, who has the right to say that they have the truth? But I'll tell you, you know, there was a, a study that was done about 20 years ago of people who had, were not Christians and they had a life-changing experience. They came into a church and they would say, my life was radically changed by Jesus. And now they're a member of the community they serve in a community and they would say, my life, I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm changing. God is changing my life. And they ask these people, what were the most important things about the church and the worship experience that you have that really changed your life? Number one, 90% of the people said the Bible was clearly taught. Number two, the church clearly knew what it thought was true and stood by its principles and communicated those principles. Both things about truth. Now, actually, it was... 40, the third thing, 49% of the people, is half the people did say friendliness, loving, welcome church. So you do need to be welcoming, but you need to speak the truth. That was the thing that changed people because the Father wants us to love him with our minds and to worship him in truth. Now some of you hear that and say, okay, I, I get it. All right, this is a very Presbyterian sermon. It's you got the covenant, covenantal, we have the liturgy where we covenant with God and it's Trinitarian and it's intellectual and we, you know, but, you know, I want to connect with God. I love him. I want to experience his presence. I want him to feel near. What do you have to say about that? You know, sometimes all this formality seems like a hindrance to really my heart connecting with who God is. Well, that's why Jesus says in verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I think that what Jesus is getting at here is that the inner spiritual experience of worship is essential. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you think about marriage, you think of worship as being connected to marriage. And how is the covenant renewed in marriage? Lovemaking. <laughs> There is passion and feeling. It's not just a formal kind of ritual that you go through. It's an experience. And I absolutely believe that God wants us to experience union with him when we come here. And many of us, when we say we felt the, spirit, the Spirit's presence during a worship service, it almost always means it moved me emotionally. Worship should speak to the deepest longings, desires, and emotions of our hearts. And I'll tell you, when those two things come together, spirit and truth, the intellect and the heart, it is extremely powerful. So true worship is Trinitarian, covenantal, communal, and let's say spiritually intellectual. <laughs> okay? 
But when you hear all this, though, you might say, wow, you know, that's a lot of pressure. Every week I come and I'm entering into the life of the Trinity and renewing the covenant and being bound together into a community. And I must engage my mind and my spirit at a deep level that you compare to lovemaking. You know, that's what, what we're doing here. That's a lot of pressure. And the reason we feel pressure is we think that this experience is something we are creating, that we are primarily doing. And that is why we need one last mark of true worship, is that true worship is Christ-centered. And you can see that, uh, you know, after this conversation about worship, where Jesus is declaring, okay, I'm going to now say how everyone should worship in the world now. I mean, it's quite a statement. Jesus is saying, this is, all human beings should worship the way I tell them to. Uh, the woman starts to recognize who he must be, and it says in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The centerpiece of true worship is Jesus Christ. And you just look at our worship service. It starts with God calling us into worship. Who called us? Whose voice said, follow me? And we followed. It was Jesus. And then we confess our sins. Who's the one who washes away our sins and forgives us and gives us grace and gives us his life and, and fills us with the Holy Spirit? It's Jesus. Every, and then we have a sermon. And every week, the sermon, what's, who's the sermon about? Every week, it's about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus pointing to him. And then we pray. Who's the high priest? who prays on our behalf, who hears our prayers, who sits at the right hand of the Father and prays for us. That's Jesus. And then we come to the Lord's Supper. And what is the Lord's Supper about? It's his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. The whole service is about him. And if you want to have the grace of Jesus be the defining mark of your life, it's a free gift that he gives to you. But the place he offers that grace to you is here, among his people. This is where he gives you that grace. And so when you come here and you're experiencing something more than simply getting your spiritual tank filled up or hearing a sermon, Jesus is here bringing you into the Trinitarian life of God, saying the words of the covenant over you, I will never leave you. And those words don't just change us as individuals, they bind us together as a family and they train our minds to know the truth and they speak to our emotions and our desires. And I tell you, there is nothing that will have a more transformative effect on your life than to say every Sunday, I'm going to be in God's house. I'll just tell you, you make it a, the simple routine of your life that every Sunday I will come to God's house. I will have an open heart to his word. I will have an open heart to what, an open mind to what God is saying. It will change your life. It will change your life because Jesus Christ is here in our midst. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you. Uh, how rich all that you are doing here in our midst. And uh, we long to be those true worshipers that you are seeking. We pray that this would be a place that brings together those two things that seem to be so rare to go together, spirit and truth that you would minister to our hearts and to our minds, that we would sense that you are in our midst and that you would speak deeply to us and bind us together as a community and that you would draw many here to worship you. We ask in the name of Christ our Lord.
Amen.